Come on in, the water's fine. Get sucked in by the triptide. Uh, hello, everybody. This is uh, Sean, your boy. And uh, this is, this is going to be weird. This is just going to be a little exercise for me to see if uh, I can even, if I can speak on my own for an hour. I want to see if, if my voice can just keep going for an hour straight. <laughs> um, I've never done anything like this before, and on the other episodes of Triptide, I, I always have my, my man Dawson. And I'm just sitting in my room right now. It's rainy, and uh, I'm just talking to myself. So, um, so yeah, I just want to see if I can if I can fill in an hour. And uh, I don't know if anyone's gonna listen to this or if I'm even gonna send it to Dawson to post. But uh, you know, it'll it'll just be a fun little exercise. Um, to fill this hour, I'm I just want to talk about some of the books that I've been reading. Um, for Christmas, my mom got me a subscription to Audible. And so <laughs> I'm going to use the term reading. I don't know if anyone will be offended by this, but I'm going to use the term reading, but I've been listening um, to a lot of books with Audible. I've really been enjoying it. I, I do highly recommend. <laughs> Hashtag not a sponsor. Um, and, but it's been really good. I haven't I used to love reading as a kid, and then I, I kind of just stopped because I'm so used to technology now that I can't just sit down and, and read a book. It's very difficult for me. But what I really like about Audible is that it, it kind of fits how my brain works. I can just get in the car and drive, and I you know I've been driving to New York a lot to see my girlfriend, and... Um, I just listen to books on the New Jersey Turnpike and it's so relaxing and it's so exciting. And I really, I do love music a lot, um, but I am right now I'm in this phase where I just really enjoy listening to books. And um, obviously Audible has been, has been wonderful for that and I, I like it a lot. So I've read a lot of books. Uh, I've read at least like six so far, which I'm proud of. Um, but I wanted to talk about two books specifically. The first one is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. And the second one is Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, I, <laughs> if you hear clicking, I have Wikipedia open just so that I won't mess anything up. <laughs> um, so I, I have my mouse right here. I'm probably going to give spoilers, for these books. I haven't really decided because I'm just winging this. Um, but there's a lot of things that I I liked about these books. And what was interesting is these were always books that I wanted to read. Um, just I knew the titles and I knew they were famous and I was like, ah, like, you know, any anyone who knows literature reads these books. Like, if I want to know literature, I, I got to read these books sometime. And so now that I have Audible, I've been, I've been reading these, and I saw, um, just on social media one time, I think it was Instagram, it was like a list of the books that were banned in most school libraries, and 
inadvertently I, I was reading this writ this list and I realized that I've read a good portion of the books on this list. Um, one of, I mean, these two are on there: Fahrenheit 451 and Slaughterhouse Five. And then there's also, um, oh gosh, the book that John Lennon's killer read. Let me look this up real quick. I should have done more research, and once I see it, um, once I see it, I'm gonna be like, oh, I'm a, I'm a dumbass. Um, Catcher in the Rye is another book on there. Um, Huck Finn was on there. To Kill a Mockingbird was on there. Um, and some other ones that I, I know that most people who went to public school would probably recognize. Um, so yeah, I've read Catcher in the Rye. I read these two books just on my own and I saw this list and now I feel like it is worth my time to, to read all these books and to kind of understand why they're kind of getting banned in most schools. I think Huck Finn and probably Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, you know, there's more obvious reasons as to why they're being banned. Um, and I can't talk about their importance having not read them yet. But maybe uh, maybe this is the beginning of a, a Triptide book club, if anybody's interested in that. So anyway, to get back to Fahrenheit 451, we'll start with that one since um, I haven't I read it before Slaughterhouse-Five, but I think Fahrenheit 50, 451 has a lot to offer. So real quick, it's it's about um, this man named Guy Montag, and he's a, a fireman, um, and this is, let's read straight from Wikipedia. He's a fireman who has become disillusioned with his role of censoring literature and destroying knowledge, eventually quitting his job and committing himself to the preservation of of literary and cultural writings. So it's about a dystopian future. And in this future, um, books are not allowed. And it's the fireman's job to actually start fires. And whenever they find a house that has books in them, they go in this big salamander slash fire truck and they, they douse the whole thing in kerosene and then they, they set it on fire. And so Guy Montag is a fireman, and he has... Uh, so now here are the spoilers. So I'm only six minutes in, and I'll be getting the spoilers. But this guy has been taking books from each of the houses, and he's trying to figure out, you know, what's in these books that, that makes our society want to burn them. And so, like, right off the bat, <laughs> you know, I'm reading this list of books that aren't allowed, and I immediately relate to Guy Montag, who's reading books that technically aren't allowed, you know? Um, so I, I found that comparison very interesting. And I, I do like, oh, George Orwell's 1984 was also on that list. And I've read that too. And that is like eerie how accurate some of Orwell's ideas are coming, you know, today. And so those eerie parallels that I, I feel in real life from 1984, I also highly feel from 451. That's why. So I think if you like 1984, <laughs> we're just going with books with numbers. Um, you should read 451 as well. Um, but so, yeah, right off the bat, I immediately found myself relating to Guy Montag. So anyway, 
guy meets girl. <laughs> um, her name is Clarice McClellan. And she's a teenager in this dystopian world. And she is just a hippie. She <laughs> She's just a plain old hippie. She comes from a hippy-dippy family with her hippy-dippy parents and her hippy-dippy uncle. And they basically tell her, like... Oh, <laughs> can't install updates on my computer. Anyway, they basically tell her... Her family tells her about, like... The world, essentially. So in this dystopian society, the media really kind of just brainwashes people and is like basically just kind of forcing the people to always be watching TV. And that that's a big part that I'll touch on as well. But Clarice and her family, they don't really watch TV. They sit around at night and they talk. And Clarice goes outside and, and she's going on walks when other teenagers are like driving really fast and whatever. And so she's just going on walks. She's looking at flowers and grass. And Guy sees her one time when he's walking home from work. And he's like, you know, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and she's just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here in the rain. And he's like, what? Why? Like, who are you? And so she basically gets Guy Montag to start thinking, to start asking questions and, you know, questioning the society that he lives in and, and the rules that he's accustomed to. I found that very interesting. I think she's a very good character. Um, again, spoiler warning. So basically the government knows who all the hippies are. So we're, we're basically in the 1960s. <laughs> and so um, they know who all the hippies are. They know about Clarice. And so one day Clarice just disappears. And later on in the book, we learn that the government probably just killed her. Guy never really finds out, but we know that she's disappeared, and he finds out that like the government had a file on her, and so her and her family were suspicious people, and so he suspects that she was probably killed for her ideas. That parallel, in, in if we were to comp keep comparing this to real life, I don't necessarily I don't think anyone would be killed like that for free thinking ideals as Wikipedia says but I think there definitely is this kind of pressure on people who are more free thinking I think there's this pressure that you can't really say what's on your mind um, whether it's for political correctness or I'm not all I mean, there are crazy people out there. I'm not trying to um, put power behind some moron's words. But I think that um, there's a lot of people out there who have these creative thoughts, who, who are, there's, everyone's always thinking. Um, but whether or not it's about the right things or the good things, um, I think it's just sometimes it's hard to speak your mind. And so that, you know, that's why I'm nervous to do this kind of thing, because um, I am speaking my mind on some of this. And I, I personally do feel like I'm not allowed to say certain things just to protect people's feelings. Um, not that they're, I don't consider them bad things. It's just like people care about things that I don't care about. And so I would like to ask them why they care about those things, but that can come off as offensive. And, and that's just the bottom line. So 
I think in that aspect, Ray Bradbury, the author, he comes close to kind of figuring out who Clarice should be. But um, I think I think in this dystopian world, he brings it to an extreme, of course. Um, and I, I don't know if, if he needed to do that. But we continue. So Guy Montag, he has a wife, and her name is Mildred. So you know that she's hot. Just anybody with the name Mildred is obviously a 10 out of 10. Sorry to our, all our Mildred fans. Um but his wife, Mildred, is consumed by TVs. So in this society, all their walls in their houses are TVs, like full screen. And the people on TV, it's like five-minute shows. There's no plot or any creativity in the shows. And somehow the people in the shows are able to say, Mildred's name so because of all these things her, her constant uh, you know constantly being by, bombarded by this kind of stuff she calls these TVs and the characters in these shows her family and for a while it that really confused me but um, Mildred really has a lot of parallels to my parents and I don't know if they're ever going to listen to this, but this is, again, me speaking my mind. My In my house, the news is always on. It's on 24-7, and it's always MSNBC, so it has a liberal bias to it. And I'm not going to get into Democrats or Republicans. I'm just, you know, MSNBC has an obvious Democratic bias towards it. So... They're always on, though. Every night, if baseball's not on or football's not on, it's the news. Both my parents. And I was saying, I, like I said, I was confused by Mildred being like, these are my family. And I, I was confused by that. But like, holy shit, I see Lester Holt's face <laughs> every single night while I'm eating dinner. Lester Holt eats dinner with us. And if that's not family, like, I don't know what is then. Um, and it sucks. <laughs> it sucks a lot. Um, I I definitely related to Mildred in the sense that my parents are Mildred. My parents are completely consumed by the news. They'll believe anything that's on that TV. They'll believe anything that Lester Holt says. And I think, you know, that's kind of the goal of the news, right? But, you know, me acting like Clarice and in some ways Guy Montag, like, you got to be able to step back and, and be like, A, do your own research, but B, just kind of ask yourself, like, is Lester Holt fucking lying to me right now? And the answer is probably he's giving you a half-truth, you know, it. There's a lot that goes into it, and I'm not going to get all conspiracy theory, but to consume only one news channel, to not even like go online and look up other newspapers or websites or whatever, um, I think is foolish, and, and that's kind of the trap Mildred falls into, and she's so consumed by it, and I just, this one hit home for me hard because I definitely saw my parents um, consumed like that as well. So the other character, the other kind of main character, 
is um, Captain Beatty. Um, he is the chief fireman in the novel, and he he's really smart. And he figures out that Guy has been taking books. And he says that every fireman at one point takes a book and just kind of sees what it's about. And so he's not mad the first time, but he lets Guy make the choice, the decision to either throw away this knowledge and go back to his safe and normal life, or to he, he kind of plays Guy and doesn't explicitly say, I know you have the books. He just... You know, he kind of hints at it and Guy kind of figures it out as well. So he gives him the choice of bring either bring back the books and you'll be fine or keep the books and keep this knowledge, but um, you're going to be screwed. And so Guy tries to, spoiler alert, excuse me, Guy Montag tries to give one book back and... Um, uh, Captain Beatty's like, okay, so you, you're you a dumbass. So they go and they burn Montag's house down and Mildred leaves him and, and Guy Montag has to go on the run. And he runs into the woods and he, <laughs> he finds all these old hobos who were um, college professors. And so apparently this utopia takes place the, the, or dystopia, excuse me. This dystopia occurs um, soon after, like, times that we're living in right now. So these people who remember what free knowledge was like, uh, you know, a time before TV and before this dystopian society occurred, they're still around, and they want people to go back to literature. They want people to go back to these old ways. And so Guy Montag just finds them in the woods. And so their job, since these hobos don't have the physical books anymore, but somehow they figure out a way to memorize books. And so when, and they say, like, when the time is right, we'll come back and we'll write these books down. And, you know, people, the, the Bible will be preserved. Um, I don't think, I don't remember if he lists other real books, but he does focus on the Bible and Christianity a lot, which also occurred in Slaughterhouse-Five a lot, too. So we'll talk about that maybe later. Um, but so, yeah, these old guys are basically going to memorize all these books and they'll write them down and they'll keep this literature going. So in that sense, there is a happy ending. But in order for them to get there, the, the sad part is that the entire city that Guy Montag escapes from, um, it gets nuked. <laughs> they, I should be laughing, but that was good timing, Sean. Good job. Um, they, the, the media basically doesn't tell them that there's a war going on. They say that war is like five minutes long. People always come back. Like, war is this glamorous, glamorous thing. And I think that is true in media today. Um, I know we're not in, like, an active war, but, like, we had a conversation with Frank. Like, all the stuff that's going on in Asia, 
I rarely see that on <laughs> on the news, you know? Like, we're, there is a tipping point of war, and I know recently we're starting to fuck around with the Middle East again. I don't, I, I've never been to war, but it doesn't seem like it'd be all that glamorous, but I think there's a lot of TV shows and a lot of movies that do make it seem, and video games too, that do make it seem glamorous. So in that re- aspect, I think Ray Bradbury did hit it on the mark a little bit. That war is really, um, war doesn't make, well, in some ways war does make money and war doesn't make money. Um, no one, that, that's why the camera was invented, to kind of show the atrocities of the Civil War. Um, and once people kind of saw all these dead bodies for themselves in these fields, they were kind of like, whoa, you know, maybe we should chill out a little bit here. Um, and so, yeah, you don't see all that kind of stuff on TV. You know, they, there's been a lot of recent shootings as I'm, as I'm recording this. And they show the outside of the location or whatever. They're always on the edge. And, of course, they can't be in the crime scene. But I think if they were showing all these dead bodies on TV at dinner time, <laughs> I don't think a lot of people would be really into that kind of stuff, you know? So and that and so in Fahrenheit four fifty one, that's kinda what they're doing. They're not showing these people the atrocities of war and they don't know that they're about to get nuked. And so Guy gets out of there just in time and the entire city um explodes. And so the hobos, the book kind of ends with the hobos just like keeping on wandering until they find a place that, that cares about their knowledge and their books. So there is a sad, there obviously is a sad portion of this, but um, it's interesting that even in this dystopian world that Ray Bradbury created, he still believes that there's going to be this positive outcome, that in the end, knowledge and these books will win. And so to to tie this all back to um, the the list of books that aren't allowed in schools anymore, I would like to believe, I would like to join in on Bradbury's um, optimism for this. I am a believer in not um, restricting access to knowledge and literature. Um, I think that's that's a very democratic um, and, and a very modern point of view, I feel. And so recently there's all this stuff going on with the Dr. Seuss books. And like I said, these list of books that are being banned from schools. And to the Dr. Seuss stuff, who, who cares? Like they didn't, they didn't ban his top sellers and they're banning them for illustrative reasons and supposedly he didn't feel good about them as he got older too I mean Dr. Seuss wasn't a great guy and banning a few of his books really how is that going to affect you know the outcome of society so bottom line uh, you know I don't really care about Dr. Seuss but banning Fahrenheit 451 from high schoolers for example I think that's a little dangerous. I think that is suspicious. Um, <laughs> I I don't know. I got a lot out of this book. I think this book does teach you the importance of literature. I think this book does teach you the importance of thinking for yourself. Um, 
And so to kind of take those themes out of a library entirely, like I know kids aren't aren't reading. I'm I myself don't do a lot of physical reading. <laughs> so how much of a difference is it going to make? I don't know if it'll make that big of a difference to completely take it out of the library. But to not even like I took uh, AP literature, U.S. literature, and I had to read Catcher in the Rye, and I liked it a lot. It goes nowhere. <laughs> I mean, it is somewhat a pointless story and a, a pointless plot, but it's written in a very, very interesting way, and I think if you're a writer, you could get a lot out of reading Catcher in the Rye. Um, so... But say if Catcher in the Rye wasn't even an option on my reading list, you know, like, I don't know. I feel that that's very dangerous, and I think that's very scary to kind of limit these ideas, um, whether it be from a library entirely or, or a reading list. I think both are wrong. Um, I The arguments with Uncle Tom's Cabin and Huckleberry Finn... Again, I haven't read them yet, but I do plan on it. And I think that'll go into a more touchy subject. Um, one that I'm probably not the expert on, believe it or not. But do I, from what I've heard, do I think that there are important lessons that can still be learned from them? Absolutely. And so I think it, it will come down to the slippery slope of okay, we'll ban Uncle Tom's Cabin, so if, you know, if the PTA board lets us get away with that, let's ban Fahrenheit 451. And, you know, so should we even let them ban any book at all? Um, I think it's a big question, and I, I don't think a lot of people are kind of speaking up for it. I think you know, one of the things that happens in Fahrenheit 51 is Mildred, his wife, who is obviously um, less intelligent than Montag, she reads, or, or no, 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 well, she does read books, but Montag reads a poem to Mildred and two of her friends, and they all break down crying because it's just that powerful, and they were never exposed to poetry and they end up, like, not liking it and reporting him to the police. And so he, Bradbury includes this scene to, to include, you know, to show the power of literature and to show what happens when people aren't exposed to literature. And I know poetry, you know, nowadays poetry is not everyone's cup of tea. And uh, you try and listen to spoken poetry and you're like oh god this is this is the bottom of my life right now <laughs> but <laughs> um i think that aspect of him showing like this is what happens when you don't give people access to this literature these are this is what people become when they don't have the opportunities to read these kind of things i think that's very powerful and i think um I, I don't want to see people become like that. I don't want to be like that. And that scene was very powerful on me because it, it motivates me even more to, to read all these books. So that was Fahrenheit 451. I really do highly recommend this book. I, I know there's a lot of spoilers in here, but obviously his writing is going to be more powerful than my speaking. 
and I think um, that this book is definitely worth your time. So now I'm going to smoothly transition into Slaughterhouse Five. So <laughs> Slaughterhouse Five is by Kurt Vonnegut or Vonnegut. I'm going to call him Vonnegut. Um, and it was first published in 1969. So the context here is that basically Vietnam's going on. And Kurt, I, I actually, I don't really know his background. Um, but he obviously, he, the first and final chapters are spoken in the first person. And so to me, I interpreted that as Kurt Vonnegut talking. And the first and final chapters are basically he's trying to figure out how to write this book. And well, the first chapter is he's trying to figure out how to write these, this book. And he wants to write about the bombing of Dresden in World War II. And I believe that like 130,000 people died in Dresden in Germany. And um, that was more than the bombs dropped on Japan. I'm not 100% on that number, but I do know that like 130,000 people died in Dresden because of this bombing by the Allies. So, obviously, so Kurt's trying to figure out a way to write about this. And then in the final chapter, and I'll get to the middle, of course, but in the final chapter, we go back to the first person tense. And he's like, yeah, I, the main character is Billy Pilgrim. And he's like, yeah, I was in Dresden after the bombing and I saw Billy Pilgrim. And like, so I don't, again, I don't know if Vonnegut was actually in Dresden at this time, but he seems to have some semblance of, again, the, the atrocities of war. And so the point of Slaughterhouse-Five is to kind of show that massacres and war are kind of meaningless. And he does, and he shows this through the obviously the bulk of the book, the the middle. So, the book is about um, a guy named Billy Pilgrim, and he joins the war. He does like a semester at the University of Chicago for f for philanthropy or something, and um, so he joins the war. And he like he doesn't have a gun. He isn't a soldier. He's not a strong dude. He's very he's very lanky and he's always trailing behind his true you know, the rest of the um the rest of the people in his squad. And he's always like, Leave me, like, you know, I'm just let him kill me. He's not he's not there for the war, basically. He's there because he has to be. And so that's very interesting right off the bat that we have a war story. You know, when you read these glamorous war stories, it's about, you know, MacArthur and him making all these genius decisions and, you know, how he turned the tide of the war. This war story is about one of the most useless people that could be in the military, potentially more useless than myself. And that's shocking. <laughs> Um, yeah, so Billy Pilgrim, he's a schmuck. He, he doesn't, you know, if, if this was dinner for schmucks, he'd be invited to said dinner. Um, 
so yeah billy kind of he's he's a doofus but so billy it's billy two scouts and then um another guy and this the other guy is like an 18 year old he's from pittsburgh don't remember his name but it's these four and they're behind um enemy lines and so then one day the two so billy sits back the 18 year old from pittsburgh he goes back to get billy and is like and he's like bullying him and he's like come on you useless fuck like let's let's keep going I don't really understand why this 18-year-old cares for Billy because in the rest of the story, he, you know, he's shit-talking Billy. He's, you know, he's bullying him, essentially. But yet he leaves his two friends to go get Billy, even though Billy, like, obviously is holding them back. He doesn't want to go. I just found this relationship very interesting. And then... So he gets Billy, they go to the two scouts, and the two scouts are like, nah, like, this is the last straw, we've waited for this guy a lot, we waited for you a lot, like, we're gonna bail. So the two scouts leave, and those were this 18-year-old's friends, I really should find his name, because the 18-year-old just isn't cutting it for me. But, whatever, so the two scouts leave, and so this kid from Pittsburgh, he's like beating the crap out of Billy, he's like, oh man, like my friends left me all because of you. I shouldn't have gone back for you. And then the these Germans roll up on them and they're like, bruh. So they, they capture them and they become prisoners of war in World War II. And they hear the two scouts getting shot <laughs> like over a hill. So, you know, sucks to suck, I guess. Um, oh, <laughs> that's funny. So sucks to suck. Um so in this book, anytime someone dies, Kurt Vonnegut goes, so it goes. Um, and so I guess the modern rendition of so it goes would be sucks to suck. Anyway, so <laughs> Billy and this kid, they get captured. The kid was like super rich from Pittsburgh, too. Like he had nice boots. He had a nice coat. And so when they get captured, the Germans are like, give us all your shit. And so he gets these crappy shoes and then he gets soldier's foot and when all the prisoners of war loaded onto the trains in Germany, um, he ends up dying in the trains car, the train car from soldier's foot. He just had shitty shoes. And so he's like, oh, like fucking Billy Pilgrim killed me because they got captured because of him. Anyway, so Billy Pilgrim goes to um, a prisoner of war camp and he meets these British fucks. And these guys are somehow, like, living life to the fullest. This was really confusing for me, <laughs> personally, because they're in a POW camp, but apparently these British guys are just kind of allowed to do whatever they want. And, again, this was another confusing part to me that I didn't understand how, how this was happening, how these guys had so much respect from the Germans. So we're just going to glance over that real quick. And so then the point is that Billy Pilgrim is later stationed or, or stationed, sorry. He's brought to Dresden and he is put in a slaughterhouse and its address is just Slaughterhouse 5. So hence the name of the book, Roll Credits. And so... um, when they're leaving, the British guys are like, oh, like Dresden has no 
military bases it has no factories it's one of the only like surviving cities in germany like you're totally going to be fine um you don't have to worry about bombings or anything and so um again like sucks to suck dresden gets bombed to fucking nothing and um you know so billy pilgrim's just kind of left in in the dust um of all you know all this ash and they have to like dig bodies out and whatever and then the book ends with the author being like yeah i saw billy pilgrim in dresden so one little thing it's not really much but one little thing i didn't mention is um billy pilgrim was abducted by aliens (laughs) they were called the tralfamadorians and (laughs) they were like these little yellow guys um they kind of look like plungers i guess and they kidnapped billy pilgrim in the 50s and then he was put on Tralfamador for apparently like years in Tralfamatorian time but like seconds in earth time and he was put in a zoo with this actress and the Tralfamadorians were just kind of looking at him like you look at animals in a zoo and so yeah that happened um and so Billy, because of the Tralfamadorians, Billy believes that he's a time traveler. And so the book itself is written not chronologically. It jumps around like nobody's business. It's hopping like a kangaroo. You'll see Billy. I, I think it was like a coping mechanism for Billy. <laughs> but Billy will be in the train car and then he'll apparently travel in time to the 60s when his son is a green beret and he's married and he has uh like the son and the daughter he's an optometrist and uh which i'll get to as well because i think that's important but like and then from the 1960s we're going to jump to when he's on tralfamador and when he got you know abducted the first time in the 50s and then oh now we're back to world war ii and He's getting off the train now. He's zoned back in and he's going, he's walking to Dresden. Like, so constantly this book is all over the place. And I think reading it in pages would be very difficult. I think that was one of the advantage of listening to it is I felt more connected to the story and I was able to follow the timeline um, a lot better. And so... Yeah, so Billy Pilgrim, he's a weird he's a weird cat. He's got a lot going on in his brain. And so also he's an optometrist after the war. And I think that was very interesting. What a weird profession for Vonnegut to choose for his main character after the war. I he could have really been anything, but he becomes an optometrist because his his wife's dad is in charge of the optometry school. And he makes a lot of money with optometry, so that's what he's doing. And optometry is a study of the eyes, just and like an eye doctor, basically, for anybody who doesn't know that. Um, And I thought that was very interesting because I think somehow Billy Pilgrim is helping people see. And he's trying to help people see that he's a time traveler, and he's trying to help people see... How to become unstuck in time. And that, and that's a quote from the book. Like Billy Pilgrim 
He's not time traveling to like prehistoric days, you know. He's not traveling to medieval. He's not traveling to the f- like the far future with flying cars and whatever. He's becoming unstuck in time in his own life, and he's jump ar- jumping around these points in his own life. And so he's trying to help people see how to do that. And the way that it's put in Slaughterhouse Five uh, is very interesting. <laughs> I can relate to this somewhat. I think I do find myself kind of daydreaming and thinking about the past and like good times I had in middle school or good times I had in high school or, you know, good times I had freshman year of college. And that seems so far away, but really it was like two or three years ago now. You know, like I think this this idea of jumping around in time Obviously, you're not physically going to these spaces, but I do find myself remembering these times a lot and enjoying them and, you know, oh, like that one time in middle school and, you know, that'll put a smile on my face. So I think that's very interesting that this was Billy's coping mechanism through the war was him jumping around and he does he does leave Dresden. He doesn't die in the war or anything like apparently most of his life that we see like did actually occur so even though it's not told chronologically apparently it is occurring all these things that he's seeing are occurring but I think it kind of touches on coping in times of stress and then it also touches on PTSD and you know maybe he is an optometrist but then he has a flashback back to the war it's never really said but I, I think it is definitely um touched on so there's a lot (laughs) in this book there's a lot to break down um i really did enjoy this and i think the point of the book is to show that war is meaningless it shows that the book is the book is told all over the place the book itself is meaningless it's um there's not like a big start and there's not a big end, you know, and Billy Pilgrim sucks as a main character. And so I think the point of the book is like, this is what war is. And this book makes no sense. So, you know, through that, the commutative property, war makes no sense. And one thing that he really, it's an anti-war novel, by the way, if you hadn't picked up on that. But one thing that's very interesting is he talks about what can be said at a massacre and he talks about the civil war specifically in this case and you know like i said earlier like all these dead bodies lying in a field you know he's like what do you you know what does anyone have to say about that and he says nobody really has anything to say the birds are the only ones who sing during this time and um they sing like he says pooty wheat is what the birds say about a massacre apparently And so that's how the book ends. There's the bombing of Dresden and Billy Pilgrim's, I don't know, shuffling around or doing whatever the fuck he does. And then some birds fly over and they sing Pooty Wheat. So his fascination of, of birds and his showing that, you know, what do you say about war? This whole book is, is just about this shit being meaningless. Um, And so that's very powerful and I I think it has that connection to 451 in the sense that war 
is very meaningless. So the media, and you know, I'm saying that very lightly. I'm saying that in a very um, utopian society, you know, kind of mind frame. Um, he's kind of showing that war is meaningless, and so in turn, the media doesn't really pay all that much attention to it. And so, you know, how does that affect society, even though, you know, North Korea could be plotting to drop a nuke on us any second? And is the media talking about it? No, you know. Um, so it makes everyone else feel good. <laughs> but in like in Fahrenheit 451, it could turn out for the worst. So, you know, the question becomes, wh why are these books getting banned? You know, they kind of have... Even though they, I, well, for, 451 takes place in a dystopian society, but like Slaughterhouse-Five kind of shows this real truth to the matter. So why are these books getting banned, you know? And I don't have an answer. I think people are just kind of afraid to, to face some of these hard truths. I think reading about war can be very difficult depending on the person and, and their background. Um, so why would Slaughterhouse-Five be banned from schools? I just, I really don't know. I think, why wouldn't you want to teach kids, A, the atrocities of war and the shit that these people went through and, and still go through to this day, and why not teach them, like, it makes no sense, so that they potentially wouldn't pursue it later on in the future and uh, you know there's a lot of arguments against what I just said I, I understand this I'm not oblivious it is very utopian kind of thinking but why like why is that wrong why is that bad why is it why is it bad for people to avoid war and why is it bad to teach them lessons that might help them do so in the meantime, I, d I don't know why Slaughterhouse-Five is banned, and I sure as hell don't know why 451 is banned, because I think Fahrenheit 451 speaks an even greater truth. And, and like I said, I relate to a lot of these characters, and I see a lot of this shit happening um, today. And why 1984 is banned, I mean, that's fucking scary as shit, because there's a lot of themes from 1984 that are occurring today. And again, like media is a big part of that as well. Um, why would these be banned? It just kind of blows my mind. And, and really, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. I'm going to continue reading this list and I'm going to try and get to the bottom of it. But I, I think the answer, again, kind of lies where that Clarice McClellan character was from 451. There's these books kind of teach free thinking and it teaches you to question things and, you know, to put on my tinfoil hat here, there might be people who don't want you to think these things. And like I said before, like, I'm not going to give Slaughterhouse-Five to middle school Sean. You know, I, I wouldn't give it to any, any person. I would say under the age of 16, you know, it's weird to put an age on a book, but like, hey, they're not going to really get what's going on. Um, and so I think you need to learn history. I think you need to have like a high school education before you can read these things. But 
you know, to ban them from high schoolers, I think is very scary. And I, I think, you know, hiding these books, even though they're kind of speaking these hard truths, I, I just don't feel comfortable with that. And that that's kind of the point of, of what this little rant was about. Um, I don't know where else to go from here. I filled 48 minutes and I'm pretty proud of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> definitely more than 75% of the hour. You know, I would be very interested in hearing other people's thoughts if anyone is um, able to listen to this whole thing. <laughs> um, and if you're interested in doing a Triptide book club, please let me know. Um, I think my next book, <laughs> I'm going to take a, just a quick break from the list. I'm going to read Born Standing Up by Steve Martin next. So if anyone's interested in reading that with me, <laughs> I'm going to be starting that Um probably this weekend so that would I don't know that would bring us to like March 30th so I'm gonna start reading that next maybe I'll keep going with the Triptide book club um so Born Standing Up by Steve Martin it's about stand-up it's about you know why he left stand-up um and so I'm very interested in that I like his writing style a lot I like his comedy and so he just has a silliness to him and I'm very interested in hearing a more serious part to him as well so that's going to be next but then I also I'm going to come back to that list and I think um I think I'm going to do To Kill a Mockingbird next um because I know that was another book that I could have read in high school but I just never got around to it and I feel like Dawson actually has read that before I, I think a lot of my friends have so That'll probably be after the Steve Martin book. And then I will definitely dive into some of the more racial themed books. And uh, maybe I'll do another one of these episodes. So thank you so much for listening. Um, there's not a sponsor for today's episode because I didn't feel like writing a commercial. But Audible, if you're listening to me, um, you know, give me a call. I'm, I'm open, baby. I could I could use a sponsorship. Um, <laughs> I really do enjoy Audible. I highly recommend. And uh, thank you so much for, for listening to this little rant.